0: Welcome to the Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season two. This episode features our patron, Dr Dennis Eady of the Cardiff University Law School. The podcast is a recording of a recent Zoom meeting between the campaign team and Jeremy's supporters, where Dennis sets out his work on the University Innocence Project. He also explains his experiences with the Criminal Cases Review Commission and the obstacles he anticipates for Jeremy. The podcast also contains an in-depth question and
1: answer session.
2: So I now have pleasure in introducing one of our patrons, Dr Dennis Edie, one of uh, Jeremy's longest standing supporters. Uh, Dennis is a lecturer at the School of Law and Politics at Cardiff University and a case consultant to the Innocence Project at Cardiff University Law School. He's been an active campaigner on miscarriages of justice for over 20 years with the organisation South Wales Against Wrongful Conviction. He has many years of experience on the topic of miscarriages of justice, including the appeals process, particularly regarding the CCRC and applications to them. He's going to look at the CCRC's history, structure and way of operating.
3: uh, And I do have
2: to... (laughs) flag up the fact that, as a result of his interactions with the CCRC over many years, he will be giving a very robust critique of the organisation and its workings. Uh, and he'll also tell you why he supports Jeremy and why he believes Jeremy is a political prisoner. So, over to you, Dennis. Hey,
4: thank you. Uh, am I uh, my screen. Can you see the screen and hear me?
3: Yeah, I
4: can see it. Yes, we can. Yeah. Okay. So, in fact, I'm not going to talk purely about the CCRC because that would uh, probably give me the the will to live if I did purely about that. So I am going to say a few words also about the Innocence Project, which Yvonne suggested I should do. That would be the Cardiff Innocence Project. And then just conclude with why I think that Jeremy's case is, is so important. I wanted to um, just start off with a kind of health warning. Um, what I say, sometimes when I, I talk to students, I I, give them, I flag up a slide of the pig of happiness just to remind them that life is actually worth living, because I think sometimes my, my talks are rather depressing. Um, and I'm very conscious that this group has a very positive vibe about the whole thing, and I don't want to dampen that down. On the other hand, I want to obviously explain things as I see them. So bear in mind as I go through that um, I have been banging my head against a brick wall for 25 years. So inevitably, there's a bit of brain damage there. Also, during that time, the system, uh, the criminal justice system, every aspect of it, in my view, has got worse. So that's kind of got me down as well. And thirdly, I am a a natural pessimist anyway. I once got a birthday card from a friend of mine which uh, said, uh, To a natural pessimist, may your birthday be not quite as bad as it probably will be. So I managed to think up a card to send back to him saying, To a confirmed optimist, may your birthday be almost as good as your unrealistic expectations of it. So uh, don't get too much of a downer from this talk, just put it down to the ramblings of, uh, of an old uh, old Git. So, what I'm going to do is sorry, let's go back a moment, talk about the appeal procedures in the CCRC, a bit about the Innocence Project, and then why Jeremy's case is important. I don't think you can separate the court, in my view, the CCRC and the Court of Appeal are completely joined at the hip. Now, the CCRC, one of their key words is independence, as I hopefully I'll illustrate and shortly um they are definitely not independent they are completely and utterly subservient to the court of appeal but just to run through what the post convictions procedures are obviously i'm not sure how much knowledge people have of this sort of stuff but i'll try and give a a brief outline of things uh when you're first convicted you're supposed to apply within 28 days which of course is no time at all in legal time um and But you can usually uh, apply for leave to appeal at a much later time. In fact, one of the cases we had overturned was about eight years. But what you've got to do then is to explain to the Court of Appeal why you've taken so long, which is a bit rich coming from them, really. Um, So initially, you apply to a single judge, and that's a paperwork exercise. There's no hearing. If the single judge grants leave to appeal, you then proceed to a full appeal in front of three judges, usually in London at the Royal Courts of Justice. If the single judge refuses leave to appeal, then at that point you are eligible to apply to the CCRC. Um, you can renew your application for leave to appeal if the single judge refuses the appeal. You can renew the application and then you have to argue your case in front of judges so you will then get an oral hearing. But you won't get legal aid for that. Um, in the case we had overturned in this situation, the single judge rejected the case on well, a quite outrageous judgment, in fact. And uh, fortunately, our barristers were prepared to work pro bono to take it to the full court, who did grant leave to appeal, after which there was another hearing, the actual appeal, which where the case was quashed. So, that repeats pretty much what I've just said. Uh, If the appeal fails at any stage, once you've gone to a single judge, and you fail at any stage, then you can go to the CCRC, which was established in 1997 as a result of the Royal Commission on Criminal Justice. Um, The CCRC can refer a case back to the Court of Appeal for a new appeal, but strong new evidence or argument, not available at the time of trial, is needed. So what about the Court of Appeal? It will not generally review any evidence that was available at the time of trial and is traditionally reluctant to overturn convictions. Uh, There are various reasons for this. One is that they fear opening the floodgates, because in fact, there are so many wrongful convictions in the criminal justice system that the case would pretty much collapse if they actually addressed them all. Obviously, all these are my opinion rather than necessarily what everybody thinks. Uh, The second thing is that the Court of Appeal has this notion that the jury is an infallible body. Um, Juries apparently never get things wrong. That is the way the Court of Appeal approaches it. So it says uh, that, well, we can't overturn this conviction because the jury heard all the evidence. And this is not a court of retrial. This is a court of review. Uh, Of course, in, in reality, the jury doesn't hear all the evidence. Here's a carefully choreographed version of the evidence from two different sides. And of course, juries make mistakes. We all know that. Uh, No one in their right mind would think that the jury, 12 random people, are always going to invariably get it right. And yet, we actually all believe that because we're taught to believe it. This is kind of Orwellian doublethink. The ability to believe two completely different and opposing views at the same time. The Court of Appeal is very good at that and they believe in the sanctity of the jury, so they don't want to overturn jury decisions, although they can be very uh, contradictory about that, as I'll hopefully demonstrate shortly. And the desire to finality for finality in the system now, finality is this notion that people have that of closure. um, And of course, if you're sitting in some hellhole of a prison, and you've got no way out of it, finality is the last thing you need. So, and of course, Jeremy's campaign is a classic example of that. If we'd observed the rule of finality, things would have been closed down long ago. So a good motto for miscarriage of justice campaigns is fuck finality. The court of appeal would only quash a conviction if it deems the conviction to be unsafe. Now, what does this actually mean? Well, unsafe means supposedly that the proper test for applied to the court in deciding whether a is unsafe is whether the new, new evidence presented is whether that evidence might reasonably have led to an acquittal, which sounds reasonable on the face of it. But of course, firstly, it's talking about new evidence, which is extreme in most cases, probably not in Jeremy's, but in most cases. New evidence is very difficult to find. So this uh, rather vague definition um, can enable the appeal to consider that a verdict is safe or unsafe. Now the one of the things that 1995 from an appeal act which set up the CCRC did was to change the Court of Appeals test from being unsafe and unsatisfactory to simply unsafe. Now on the face of it, that sounds like a pretty mundane you know, semantic change but the way it's actually worked out is things like, for example what um, Yvonne was talking about earlier uh, technical issues or even dodgy police practices or unfair aspects of the trial can be ignored by the Court of Appeal if they think the bird is unsafe anyway. So not, it doesn't matter if it's not been arrived at satisfactorily, as long as it's considered safe. Of course, what the Court of Appeal is doing there is exactly what they won't do with the jury. They are effectively making the decision that is the jury's decision. When it's convenient, they will say, well, we're not going to override the jury's decision. When it's inconvenient, they will let do exactly that. So the loss of the word unsatisfactory, although it may seem like a small point, is actually quite significant. So, what about the CCRC, where does this fit in with all this? Well, it was um, the Royal Commission on Criminal Justice, the Brunsterman Commission, was set up in response to what was perceived at the time as a justice in crisis, following the Birmingham Six and Bill for Wrongful Convictions for IRA bombings. so that was in 1991, on the day that the Birmingham Six were released, the Home Secretary ordered the Royal Commission. And one of the things they came up with was the recommendation of the formation of the Criminal cases Review Commission. And in relation to this, in my view, the Royal Commission got it right. Because what they said was, regardless of whether there was new evidence or legal anomaly. So... They were willing to change the, the Court of Appeal's approach, simply what they were trying to do. So that's what that's actually what they said. We don't think that quashing the jury's verdict, where the Court believes it to be unsafe, undermines the system of jury trial. We therefore recommend that we make clear that the Court of appeals should quash a conviction, notwithstanding that the jury wished their verdict, having heard all the relevant evidence, without any error of law or material irregularity. Having occurred, if after reviewing the case the court concludes the verdict is or may be unsafe. So, in other words, they're saying you can revisit the jury decision. Juries are not infallible. Um, the court of appeal is is far too rigid in the way it approaches these things. So that was good news. The problem was that the legislation that set up the CCRC didn't follow that principle. And this is in the Criminal Appeal Act of 1995, the one that dropped the term. Unsatisfactory as well. Section 13 is the key one, and you've probably heard of this terrible expression, a real possibility. Um, Now, I always thought that any possibility was a real possibility, otherwise, it's an impossibility. But apparently, this means something else. And what it effectively means is that we are sticking with the way the Court of Appeal has always done it. So you need strong new evidence or you need a very strong legal reason why the case should be seen as unsafe. Um, Note, however, point two at the bottom there, there is a subsection which says uh, nothing in the above shall prevent the making of a reference. If it, the if it appears to the commission, that's CCRC, then there are exceptional circumstances which justify making it. So, as with the Court of Appeal, there is the right in the CCRC to refer cases on, for want of a better expression, lurking doubt, or if they believe the jury simply made the wrong decision. The trouble is they they won't do this. If, I don't think they've ever done it, in fact. So it's not purely a question of the tests, it's also a question of the culture that the remit of the CCRC has created. And the way that organisation has developed, because they could they could push the court a lot more than they do. They're very very subservient. Lord Bingham made a very clumsy attempt to define to CCRC referral thing. I, what is a real possibility? And he came up with that rather amusing uh, sort of ramble. More than outside chance or bare possibility, but which may be less than a probability or a likelihood or a racing certainty. What a load of twaddle! So there must be at least a prospect of the conviction being referred, if not being upheld. So the expression people use as well, in that judgment, the CCRC is inevitably second-guessing the
3: Court of Appeal. So what the, what's going on with the Court of Appeal? Well, they started
4: in 1997, so they've been going um three, four years now or so. These days, they get approximately 1,500 applications a year. Um, and it's about and the referral rate has varied from about 3.5 to, I think it went down one year, to 0. 0.7. I've never quite worked out when they refer a case, whether they're talking about individuals or cases. For example, this year, they have referred about 47 post office workers. Now, is that 47 cases or is that one? Probably 47 in their figures. Or if there's a case which involves three defendants, is that three referrals or one? I'm not quite sure. So it's a low referral rate. In fairness to the CCRC, they do point out that a lot of people apply to them because when they're not eligible, i.e. they haven't exhausted their appeal options. So they argue, well, it's actually a bit higher than that. And that's a fair point, I suppose. And once a case is referred, they've got approximately 50, uh, 60 70 percent chance of success at the of appeal, bill according to recent records case reviews are conducted by case review managers but decisions are made by highly paid and now they weren't always but now they're all part-time commissioners which i think is uh, absolutely shocking um if you're going to make a decision in such serious you know life and death matters for and many people die in prison with the, or or die from the stress of it all um so they're making crucial decisions you should at least be involved in the investigation as a commissioner and you should be taking this on as a serious full-time job not going popping in one day a week to make a decision about somebody's life when you've not really been involved in the investigation i think that's absolutely deplorable Um, And this low rate of referral reflects the deference of the CCRC to the Court of Appeal, not how it was originally envisioned by the Royal Commission. There are some good things. The powers of the CCRC, they do have extensive powers. They can obtain documents and exhibits from both public and private bodies. So when you think of the struggle that Jeremy's campaign has had over the years of getting disclosure, in theory the CCRC can get pretty well anything disclosed. Of course, what sometimes happens is the police say, oh, well, we've lost it, sorry. And CCRC say, oh oh, oh dear, that's unfortunate. And that's where it ends. Uh, They don't seem to have any power to do anything about it when these things are lost or they claim to be lost. And that's the thing we've had quite a few run-ins with them about. They can interview witnesses, re-interview witnesses. They can commission expert reports. And they can order a police investigation, including getting an outside force investigating the work of the original force. And that has been quite uh, important in certain cases, such as uh, News Agent 3 or a fellow patron, Michael Um, O'Brien. When he was in prison, Michael was furious about the idea of a police investigation because he felt the police investigating the police was not going to work. Sometimes when you get an outside force, they actually quite like... Um, shipping the original uh, the force gives them a bit of a, a better in, impression, I think, of themselves. So it can work, and we work with police investigators or police ex police experts uh, with the Cardiff Innocence Project. And you know, it's the thing about the police experts is that they they know all the tricks, they know what goes on, um, and they can be quite insightful. In these situations. Uh, the other good thing about the CCRC is you can get reapply. So as with Jeremy, rejected once, you can reapply again. Sometimes people keep reapplying when they are said not to have any case or keep repeating what they put in before. And sometimes they, the CCRC will say, we're not accepting any more applications unless they're done through a solicitor. More details on their website. Um, Comment from a retired senior police officer. The Commission undoubtedly protect the police from investigation, for criminality, or misconduct. The reason for this is inexplicable, and it's an explicit endorsement of noble cause corruption. One of the things in the remit of the CPS of the CCRC is to raise issues with the government if they have concerns about the criminal justice system. And we've been banging on to them for years about this. to... They are between a rock and a hard place, the structure in the government dominant policy wanting to be tough on crime and the Court of Appeal intransigent on the other end. And it's a difficult situation, but the problem for me with the CCRC is that they just accept it. They have a very passive approach to it. They could be going back to government and saying, look, we can't do anything about police misconduct, which is creating miscarriage of justice because the Court of Appeal, in our view, will throw it out. Um, and similarly with unfair trial aspects. We've put many applications into the CCRC about police corruption and about unfair trials, and they're not seen as important, which is extraordinary. So, in summary, the appeal system is very restrictive. New evidence, which was not available at the time of trial, is hard to find, and even then they may choose not to accept it. Uh, legal errors of any significance are relatively rare, really, and if they are there, not really significant enough to make the conviction unsafe. And although the CCRC Court of Appeal have the power to overturn a conviction on the basis that the jury simply got it wrong, they are extremely reluctant to use this power. Just to be more depressing, uh, this, I think, slide illustrates just how bad things have got. This was a a judicial review, Ashley Giles versus Criminal Cases Review Commission, making a, a judicial review of the CCR's rejection of his case. And in this case, the High Court summed up the role of the CCRC. And the bits I've highlighted, though, I think are highly significant. Firstly, they describe it as an important filter for the CACD's Court of Appeal Criminal Division. An important filter for the Court of Appeal. Now, there's a diametric opposite of what it was supposed to be. Think back to the Royal Commission. And how it came about. Cases like the Guilford 4, Birmingham 6 had, had numerous appeals thrown out before they were eventually cleared. And consequently, uh, the whole idea of, this, of the commission was to challenge that situation, to, to stop it happening again. Not to be a filter, not to, to stop cases even getting to the Court of Appeal, but be saying to the Court of Appeal, this is a miscarriage of justice, you need to address it. So there's a diametric opposite of what it's supposed to be. And in the interests of justice on the one hand, and those of finality on the other. Well, you know what I think about finality. And you cannot trade off in the interests of justice against finality. Justice does not end. It doesn't have a start or an end. It either exists or it doesn't. There's no question of finality about it. In Jeremy's case, Jeremy's campaign is a, a tribute to that philosophy. And rather frighteningly, again, for Jeremy's case, Even if the threshold conditions are satisfied, in other words, the real possibility test, the CCRC retains the discretion not to refer a case to the Court of Appeal. Uh, Now, they say, well, that's uh, if it's a very, very old case. It's not in the public interest. But the fact that the High Court is saying that is quite worrying. And finally, the CCRC reasons should not be subject to a rigorous audit to establish that they were not open to legal criticism. Well, heaven forbid that a public body which has paid millions of pounds a year and is a crucial stage in the criminal justice system and is responsible for people's lives should be subjected to rigorous audit. What an outrageous suggestion, it's incredible. So I thought it was a very good quote from the book by David Anderson, and Nigel Scott, Three False Convictions. Judicial truth, however ridiculous, always trumps real truth and common sense. So the Court of Appeal can often come out with the most bizarre arguments, which have they have a way of making them sound convincing, when in fact they're complete nonsense. And there's a very good word, casuistry, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's the specious or excessively subtle reasoning intended to rationalise or mislead. And I think the Court of Appeal are experts at the application of judicial casuistry. So let's see uh, a brief sort of run to the Court of Bill and CCRC. Um, Yvonne did ask me to say a little bit about Innocence Projects, so I'll do that now. Everything I say is essentially about the Cardiff Project. project. Other projects are different in some ways. They're not all called Innocence Projects, but there are probably about half a dozen around the country. Nobody can quite work out how many there are now and which ones are running and which aren't. So Cardiff, um, I think... Many people that contact us see the, you know, the university law department as the centre of resources, skills, and influence. The reality of our project, I think, the inexperienced student students, led by the deluded i.e. me, in pursuit of the impossible, i.e., overturning convictions. So, and, so we try to say to people when they write to us, "Look, we're the last result. You know, we don't have a very good success rate. You need to." Uh, get legal, proper legal help if you possibly can. So what is an Innocence Project? Well, it's basically a clinical program established in universities where students work on cases of alleged miscarriage of justice, and particularly claims of innocence. Uh, There were some in journalism departments, I'm not sure they still exist now. There was one at Cardiff once and Winchester did some good work on the David Morris case. He recently died in prison, incidentally. Um, so where appropriate, the project can aid an individual seeking appeal against their conviction. They did develop in response to concerns that the current appeal system neglects certain victims of wrongful conviction. And the instance projects were very big in America, and very successful in America, unlike in the UK, because they're largely big law firms using universities and having massive resources. Um, and uh, a guy called Michael Norton set up the first Innocent project in Bristol, and eventually a network of projects around the country, which is now kind of disintegrated. But nevertheless, that's where it came from. Now, you'll gather from what I've been saying, hopefully, that there is this kind of divide between legal innocence and factual innocence. Um, it's very difficult to explain to people, to our, to our clients, people who write to us, that um so this is very curious that uh, the appeal system is not interested in innocence you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous but uh in fact it's not it's interested in in the system in the rules and what's been decided so it's uh it wants to ma- it's there to maintain the system and it's not there to challenge it uh so CCRC court of appeal in my view seem to be largely intent on keeping the lid on things and uh, ensuring that you know we don't we're not going to overturn cases just because of a little bit of a an anomaly here or there or a dodgy witness or a bit of dodgy police practice and so on. So there has to be a real good legal reason as opposed to a factual innocence reason. So sometimes, you know, I had a guy on the phone the last couple of days, he's finished his prison sentence but he's still you know, absolutely distraught I mean, about c- it, and cannot accept, you know, it keeps saying, well, she was lying, you know, this is all lies. Um, I don't Well, not my fault. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, you have to say, well, it, actually, it doesn't matter. It, the, the, the appeal system doesn't care if the jury believed it. That's it, you know. So there is this distinction, which is a, it could be a, you know, could debate this for hours, perhaps this kind of notion, but I think it's, quite well explained in a couple of little quotes in the corner there. These come from Gareth Jones's case, which is one of the cases we had overturned. There's a ruling called the McCook ruling, which when, when you apply for an appeal with different lawyers to the ones who had a trial, you now have to go back to the original lawyers and get their opinion on the grounds of the appeal that you're putting forward. Now, in this case, uh, the Gareth's original barrister was very unhelpful and said, "Oh, everything was perfectly all right." Blah blah blah. His trial solicitor, uh, in fairness to him, was very straightforward, and he said, "I remain convinced that the appellant was wrongly convicted." He was good enough to say, "Well, look, we screwed up a bit here. We got him. We didn't. We should have. We should have got him off. We didn't." Uh, when the CPS barrister for the appeal saw what the trial solicitor had written, he said, "This is this opinion seems to be his global view of the strength of the evidence against the appellant." rather than being based on any relevant issue. So the strength of the evidence against the appellant is not a relevant issue in his view. Now try and work that one out. Strength of the evidence is not a relevant issue. So that's the divide between factual innocence and, and legal innocence. Sometimes the strength of the evidence is not legally um, valid in according to the appeal system. So our Cardiff project, can quick run through the figures, we've made 31 applications to the CCRC plus four, where we've tried again and another go. Only one has been referred. That was the case of uh, Dwayne George, which was quashed in 2014. Um, 19 cases have been rejected by the CCRC. Two of those were still challenging the provisional statement of reasons, PSOR. We still got eleven cases at the CCRC at the moment. Uh, we had one case which was we went we got as far as the first appeal, but it was rejected. Um, and we've got one case at the moment listed for challenge to the judge's leave to appeal. We've also had one case quashed at the first appeal, so that was not a CCRC case, and that was the case of Gareth Jones. Uh, we have another twenty cases at. Approximately various stages of preparation and review. And last term we had 92 students involved. So it's very popular among students. And uh, you know, we've we've got the only thing we have staffing-wise, we've got myself and my colleague, Dr. Ollie Greenwood, who I think has only allocated a few hours, but probably does about two or three days on the project. Um, and we've got uh, last year, last term we had 10 student groups. We had a research project to Group looking at policy and support, and one group working with joint enterprise, not guilty by association, Jengba, on some of their stuff. Uh, we get about hundred applications a year, or at least inquiries a year of different sorts. So obviously we can't help everybody, but we make a point of responding to every letter because many people in prisons, uh, you know, they don't get they write all sorts of people and don't get a bit of reply. So we try and help in. In any way we can, but obviously we can't take on every case. Um, so we're looking at potential for innocence. Can anything be potentially be done? Can students do anything? Is it not in our realm of competence? Uh, some negative aspects to our situation. Obviously, the very restrictive appeal process. Many cases, by the time they get to us, are at the end of the line. They've used up their best arguments an appeal, maybe, or maybe we're going. To, an awful lot now of historical sex abuse cases, which, although we've worked out a system of working on those and a structure for doing it, are very difficult because they largely come down to uh, one word against another. Trials are very short, there's very little evidence presented. Um, quite a complete contrast to, say, Jeremy's case, where there's you know, thousands and thousands of files, and there's, well, uh, these cases are very, very evidence thin. Uh, sometimes important documents are missing. We're always working with at least two hands behind, tied behind our back, sometimes three. Um, there's a disclosure problem anyway, the destruction of evidence, including court transcripts, which are destroyed after five years. So we've got cases where we can't even get the summing up because it's been destroyed. and you know, It's just wanton vandalism. There's <laughs> no reason for it at all. Uh, we have no legal aid to fund experts and lawyers. Casework work can be very complex, as you all know from this case. Time-consuming, frustrating, meeting dead ends, and some insurmountable barriers. Progress can be very slow and non-existent. Uh, not all our cases are clear miscarriage of justice. You know. It's very difficult to work out. You know, I did a sort of calculation in my head, which is pure speculation, really, but well, bit of, maybe based on a bit of experience. Um, and I reckon of our, our cases, probably about. 20% of people that we look at probably are guilty of the original offence. Um, probably about 30% are completely innocent. And the other 50% are probably we just don't know, because we can never really unravel what is true and what isn't. You know, it's, you can't always tell. And there's a big problem, of course, of whether you work on a case, how long you work, when do you stop working on a case? And I'll come back to that in just a moment. So why do we have so little success? Cardiff is the only project in the country to have overturned any cases, any project of this kind. Um, I was tempting to ask, ask who it does have any success in this area. Many of the strongest cases, Jeremy's for example, will be taken on by the lawyers and by media, so we don't, you know, we get cases which lawyers have often rejected. So that you know, gives them not a very good start. Uh, there was a lack of experience and expertise initially, particularly with students, but of course, so there are in many people who have confronted successful campaigns. Again, many people have worked on Jeremy's campaign, had no legal experience before they started, they are an awful lot now. Uh, similarly, if you look at an organisation like Jengba, Joint Enterprise Against, um, not guilty by association, I've completely that. them. Joint Enterprise, not guilty by association. <laughs> um, Jengba were just a, a grassroots Bunch of people who have no legal experience, whatever, Um, uh, mostly women who were directly affected by joint enterprise convictions, who have achieved an enormous amount. Uh, So, similar in in many ways to Jeremy's campaign. Uh, There's a massive resistance to post trial conviction. The Supreme Court's ludicrous ruling in in R versus Nunn, which I can tell you more about if you want, um, has made this even worse. so we have no little no funding, really. We're usually last resort, and of course, we're faced with an impossible decision, an impossible system. There are some positives to our, our organisation. You'll be pleased to hear. Um, first of all, we give a free service to desperate people who have exhausted other options. We can't cost people who have spent thousands and thousands of pounds on lawyers just to be told they can't do anything. It's a, it's a scandal, really. Often, you watch all these... Uh, programs about rogue traders, you know, that there was always, always the working class, always builders and uh, people like that. Um, I do feel they should do one on lawyers because there are some real scoundrels out there. It would take thousands of, thousands of pounds of money to do absolutely nothing. We come across that a lot. Uh, we now have established working methods and we're developing those. Um, so we have a you know, tailor made system of working uh, so that student team leaders can work more easily with their team without having to think of things all the time This sort of summary is tailor-made for them uh we do have access access to some very very good experts we've got a forensic scientists who advises us we've got two excellent policing experts lawyers are a bit of a problem because they they seem to be keen but then they sort of go off the radar most of them That's a real problem we're having there um we've got a pathologist who advises so um A lot of people will do pro bono work. It will help out this sort of organisation without pay. It's surprising how how many people will do that. So it's quite encouraging. We've got some fantastic, enthusiastic, talented and committed students. We have been involved in a bit of research on these areas, just occasional paper and stuff. And we've been involved in policy. Um, We've given evidence to various government inquiries and consultations, including the... uh, Justice Select Committee in 2015, Westminster Commission in 2019, particularly about the CCRC, in fact. And it gives students a real case experience and new insights and teamwork experience. So, to some extent, we want to go beyond this legality and we want to see see the value of um, the, for want of a better word, the social work side of things, um, to actually not just be purely thinking in legal terms, but to be thinking in innocence is very important for people. So even if you can't always overturn the case, as we usually can't, it's important we have a good customer service. So we we try to uh, support people who are desperate. We try not to abandon them if we can possibly help it. Um, sometimes we stick with cases because purely because we believe in their innocence. Um, and it's crucially important that you know show that somebody cares about the terrible experiences that people are going through um and not to just write them off and use this you know sort of terrible terms that are used uh, um ineligible cases and um, you know cases which are, are without merit and this sort of thing you know they don't write things off in that way um that last point there about um there was a Mr Foster who was chair of the CCLC a while ago, uh, his comment in fact was something like uh, he was rather derogatory towards innocence projects and he said, you know, would you want your case looked after by, uh, you know, a, a professional um, consultant uh, oncologist or by a bunch of students in a bar on a Friday night? Um, well, I mean, both of those descriptions are inaccurate. Uh, our students don't do their work in the bar on a Friday night. Um, might be nice if they did. And I don't think you can compare the CCRC to to a consultant oncologist either, for that matter. Um, But sometimes we do feel what we're providing is a kind of palliative care. It's almost like running a hospital where nobody's sick and nobody's well. So, uh, but that's important. It's important, um, and I'll show you why it's important in just a moment. A couple of little quotes on the student experience. So i just read these out because they're quite nice in a way. Sometimes difficult but ultimately rewarding nature of our work with the project it has been invaluable in teaching us to approach any situation with an open mind and a commitment to see justice done. And it's great credit to our students. However dodgy the case might look, they always approach it with an open mind. Being part of the Innocence Project has been the most worthwhile thing I've ever done. It's introduced me to a side of the law I've never seen before, the side they don't teach you the side that doesn't work. It helped me grow in so many ways, not only from a legal point of view, but also a personal one. The project opened my eyes and wiped away any naivety I had. I came into it with the view that if somebody's found guilty, then that must be true because we have a system that works, that has found them guilty in a fair trial. I know, I'm such a fool. <laughs> but in reality, the system is so flawed, so vulnerable to miscarriages of justice and innocence projects expose the flaws. We think because we see the occasional news story like Jed Evans or something like that is a a rare event. In reality, it happens alarmingly often. And just because it isn't in the news, often we shouldn't ever let people ignore this and brush it over. Because it could just as easily happen to me or my family or to any poor sod unfortunate enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So those are student comments. So, you know, given the nature of this work and... You know, how difficult it is, how rare the successes are. Um, you know Why do we carry on? And I think this letter, if my memory serves me right, I mentioned the Gareth Jones case earlier, which is one was eventually overturned, but the single judge turned it down. And I'd got that ruling through, and I thought, well, if they turn that down, what on earth can you do? You know, it's, it's hopeless. So I was in a pretty low state at that time. And I think around that time, I got this letter through from, this is a guy who'd made, we'd made a CCRC application, uh, which I thought was a pretty good one. Um, and it was rejected by the CCRC. We challenged it, and still rejected. And he wrote this, that there are many times that I was ready to draw the curtains on my life, and just a handful of people got me through those dark, awful times. What I'm trying to say is that no matter how sad I feel about the outcome of my case, Please, please tell yourself and your students that it's not always the end result that counts the most. Please don't ever give up trying. I'm sad for you lot for not winning on my behalf because I feel you will work so very hard. So don't be too sad because I'm certain I won't be the only person who gained so much strength from your help. And if you folk give just one more person in this world the strength to get through the darkest times, then surely isn't all your work worth it. So a very moving letter and, uh, you know, when you're at a low ebb, it's things like that that keep you going. And of course, you should all feel that as supporters of Jeremy, because and Jeremy is the most amazingly positive person, but he probably wouldn't have been able to maintain that without the support he's had. So it's a really crucial thing. And that's why we shouldn't take a totally legalistic approach to it. Sometimes you need to get a little bit personally involved, because these are human beings, they're not cases. One thing the CCRC very rarely do is to meet the client because if they did, they might find it a lot more difficult to write them off in the way that they do. So why is Jeremy's case so important? Um, This is the last slide, you'll be relieved here. Well, firstly, the obvious point, that he's innocent. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Secondly, despite um, Yvonne's brilliant forensic analysis of why the whole life sentence is uh, not legally valid given the nature of the crime he's not going to be released unless we succeed in getting the case overturned I mean highly you can't see the parole board releasing thirdly as the last slide shows having someone on the outside who cares is crucial to survival so this campaign is is a crucial thing to to Jeremy survive. I'm sure. Whatever happens. And the fourth point is, I think perhaps the most interesting one, but also the most disturbing one, in that the case is swamped by these false, irrational beliefs that defy the evidence. Uh, you know, on, on an evidence basis, you know, Jeremy's case is unsustainable and it has been for years. But there's this thing in society, even even in the miscarriage of justice world, there's a little bit of an edge about Jeremy's case that it seems to be something which people don't want to accept the evidence. They would rather believe the story. And we've seen this in the recent TV program, seen the second one, but saw the, the first one on ITV and. You know, it's, it, they don't want to talk to the campaign. They wouldn't want to look at the evidence because that's going to ruin a good story. Um, you know, somebody putting a terrible crime because of mental illness is not as attractive for selling newspapers and making TV programmes as, you know, the, the evil sort of person making a, an incredible abacusricity-type abac- abac- um, planned murder, you know. Um, it's it's a it's a baffling syndrome, and, but it's it was Sean, Sean Jenkins' case was very similar. You don't know whether you remember that, but his foster daughter was killed by a, well, in front of a better expression? A, a mentally ill person, a, ran, a random lunatic. In fact, at the back of the house, there was no doubt about that. The evidence was overwhelming, and yet they preferred to convict and maintain a conviction for a long time against Sean Jenkins, even though the evidence against him was non-existent. So the criminal justice system can live in this kind of fantasy world and continue with its irrational beliefs. And that really is frightening. Um, And that's why, you know, there's a bit of caution about Jeremy's case because evidentially there's no doubt you've won the case. But people don't want to listen to it. And the system doesn't want to listen to it because, in my view, he's a political prisoner of the legal system. If Jeremy's case is overturned, it will reveal a level of incompetence, casualty, remember that word, uh, specious reasoning, and corruption that would expose the irrationality and inhumanity of, uh, bear with me a little poetry at the end, for those that wear the wigs of clowns and those that wear the robes of shame, they don't wear them in our name. So, thank you for listening. Sorry I've gone on a bit. Um, if there's any questions, I'll be happy to, to try and evade them. Thank, thank you very much, Dennis.
2: That was a, a fascinating and forthright look at the CCRC and the appeals system. Uh, and a couple of people have asked if you could just say a, a bit more about the Nunn ruling, because obviously that's had quite an effect on, on Jeremy's case, particularly with the judicial
4: review last year.
2: So c- could you just expand on that a little bit?
4: Yeah, the case of none. Um, involved in getting some what it was effectively some dna evidence which the police were refusing to mr nunn and it eventually got as far as the supreme court and they actually the court of appeal refused uh, to insist on the disclosure got as far as the supreme court and the court the supreme court made a ruling which again acted against mr nunn so he, he couldn't get this, this stuff essentially what what the supreme court has said well uh, what well, they said it was um the time for disclosure is pre-trial yes it is but of course we all know that doesn't always happen um they then said they made this kind of thing which was based on the attorney general's rules and it's actually a piece of uh, if you're familiar with the expression catch 22 from the famous novel um well whichever way you turn you lose because they said well disclosure should be allowed If uh, the investigation of what you're seeking would reveal something different and something significant and fresh evidence. Now, that's fine, isn't it? But how do you get that if you can't get the disclosure? So saying you should be allowed to disclose if what you're going to disclose is going to prove your case. Well, you don't know that until <laughs> it's disclosed, of course. do. So it's a, it's a catch-22. It's a ludicrous statement from these supposedly highly intelligent people. So that, that's the, the police's obligation, is to consider post-trial disclosure um, if they think it might reveal something which could under, undermine the case. And of course, the police don't want to think that because uh, they don't want to undermine their own case. So it's a a complete, it's either naive or it's um, dishonest and evil, the ruling. take your choice. The other thing that the nun uh, ruling says is, well, the police don't need to disclose because the CCRC have the powers of disclosure and the responsibility lies with them. Now that, that is true. However, remember, as I said earlier, you can't go to the CCRC until you've exhausted your appeal options and you can't get an appeal unless you've got your new evidence so you need disclosure before you can appeal so to say it was the CCRC under that rule, you won't even get there if you can't do the disclosure in the first place and we all know that you've got to do most of the work yourself if you're going to have a successful CCRC application now, a lot of people think well, you can just write a, a, fill in the form, send it off, and they'll investigate my case. That's not going to happen. You've got to present them with, you know, pretty well your case pretty much sewn up uh, for, before they'll really take it seriously. So that's an non essentially. It, it, makes, it gives the police a good excuse not to disclose anything, and it, it means that, you know, you've got to get to the CCRC before you can get that disclosure. It creates a catch-22 impossible situation for people.
2: But the thing, yeah, that's a very good explanation of how it sort of operates, but the thing that always struck me about none is that everyone seems to agree there should be full disclosure before trial, so therefore, in theory, the none ruling is completely unnecessary because if nothing if something hasn't been disclosed by, by definition it's in uh, default on that overarching principle, isn't it uh,
4: yes yeah <laughs> um. But, again, this comes back to the Court of Appeal's approach and the issue of unsatisfactory. Uh, when there's non-disclosure and it, it's revealed, the Court of Appeal will make a judgment. well, would it have made any difference? You know, so they're usurping the wrong of the jury, doing exactly what they say. Been. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, would it have made any difference? So, well, no, we don't think that would have made any difference. So um, so the non-disclosure doesn't, uh, you know, it just gets pulled gets <laughs> off. And, of course, you know, Disclosure is a very complex thing, I mean, particularly in big cases where you've got masses and masses of documents, the the rules on disclosure changed changed in 96, um, where for the first time the defence had to disclose their case to the prosecution, they didn't used to have to do that, Um, but it placed the, the responsibility disclosure firmly in the hands of the prosecution who, you know, says they've got to undermine their own case. So you've got a lot of instances where a lot of stuff was being put on the sensitive schedule and under public interest immunity, because that's stuff that they would rather defence didn't know about. So disclosure happens, uh, sorry, non-disclosure definitely happens. And, you know, even then, uh, you know, you might get new develops in science, which means you need to get an exhibit to test that exhibit afterwards, you know, since the trial. So... It's,
3: uh, you know, we would like to see open justice. Mm. Full disclosure. I'll just say for people who might not be aware or are new to the group, um, court orders were made by the appeal court judges in 2002 for full disclosure of Jeremy's material. We thought that had been done when the um, Stoke and Church and the CPS gave their documentation to um, Jeremy's legal team in, after the appeal, We got that documentation after PII, that's Public Interest Immunity Laws, changed. We got that material in 2011. And by going through that material, we have about 10% of what was generated in the case. So even though there was Court of Appeal rulings to say we have to have full disclosure, we've got 10%. And even now, in the um, judicial review we had last year, the High Court Judge, we gave him the court orders and he didn't go against, he said it's up to the CCRC. Mm-hmm. So I've been asked a question, Dennis. Um Is the CCRC, I'm not even going to answer this, is the CCRC for purpose? Um, <laughs> can you guess your <laughs> answer?
4: No. Um, no, it's not. Um I think main, mainly for, well... And we go on about the tests and the way it was set up, and that is a big issue. But, of course, changing the tests isn't going to solve the problem. Um, It's the whole philosophy of the thing. I think, as I tried to point out in the talk, uh, had they acted on what the Royal Commission suggested, then I think it could have been. Uh, I've recently been involved in a consultation with with some people in Canada. The Canadian government is uh, thinking of setting up a CCLC, so we had the opportunity to say to them, look, for goodness sake, don't mess it up the way we have. Don't bind it into the Court of Appeal. A successful CCRC has to, in some way, pull against the Court of Appeal. It needs to be genuinely independent of them. I've even argued or suggested to the Westminster Commission that the CCRC should not be able to quash convictions, which sounds counterintuitive, but it would be the only way that you can actually... Take the power from the Court of Appeal. As long as that sits there in the Court of Appeal, which is a completely unaccountable body, bear in mind. You know, you say, "Well, politicians are uh, accountable ultimately to the courts." Yeah, but who are Court of Appeal judges accountable to? I'll tell you, the Queen. That's the only person they're accountable to. I can't see her doing much about it. So, so it's not it's not fit for purpose because. It's been set up, unfortunately, too much in line with the Court of Appeal. But also, I think the culture that's developed in the Court of Appeal has become very sort of bureaucratic, and it, and it accepts its position. It doesn't have any any drive to change things. When when they've been consulted on these issues, the Justice Committee, the Westminster Commission, all that, um, they've often given evidence, and they've said, well, you know, we don't mind if you want to, Review the test. We would, you know, would support a review, not a comment. Oh, yeah, you should do it. or you shouldn't. We well, support a review. Um, there's no. They seem to think it's all okay. I mean, I, I, I mean, I get obviously a bit down with my job because we, with so many people, we can't help. And I often wonder, do how do CCRC workers feel about that? You know, because they, you know, they're constantly turning people down. Um, and, and they often uh, we have. I sometimes go to their stakeholder meetings. And you often say that, well, we're you know, there's one oh, we're referring a case today, so we're all really pleased about this and there's a real celebration around the office. And I think, well great, well, why don't you do it more often? Have a bit more fun in life, yeah. <laughs> um so it's very so it's quite an odd organisation in a way, because you know, I think I think they actually really do believe that they care about miscarriage of justice. So they say that and you think, Well I think they actually do believe it, and they just uh, define it differently.
2: Can I pick a little, little bit about one what Yvonne said? Uh, the fact that they
1: had court orders against them um, from, say, 1989,
3: are they able to hide that fact behind the uh, non ruling? Well, uh, it was 2002, the court orders. All oh, right. right. Hmm. So, yeah. So so be be just 2000.
4: 2000. I would have thought the court order would override that, right? Really.
2: Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, did. in the judicial review it didn't, and he specifically said you don't pass the non-threshold. However, I do recommend it goes back to the CCRC. So he sort of had a half cop-out, but yeah. his basic ruling was that we hadn't passed the non-test.
4: Yeah, well, this is casualty, not it? This is story, isn't it? Just the great art of casualty that you...
2: But you, you mentioned Canada, um, Dennis. Obviously, another common law jurisdiction, uh, uh, and also the desirability of open justice. I mean, other common law jurisdictions such as Canada and the US seem to be much further down the line to open justice. Why is it that we're so, you know, lagging so far behind on this? Yeah, so
4: I don't, I don't know, um, uh, and also, also one thing we learned about. Canada, the Court of Appeal does, doesn't have this new evidence thing. It is, it is willing to revisit jury decisions, it seems. So they start off with a better premise there. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know, there's something about the system in this country which has just evolved to be more and more kind of uh, difficult about the whole thing. But they, they seem
2: to take the overarching stance that they're there to protect the integrity of the system. But all of these cases, you know, Guildford 4, Birmingham 6, etc., they they all fall down on lack of disclosure. I'm sure at least 90% of cases that turn out to be major miscarriages of justice are because of lack of disclosure. It, It just seems bizarre that they can't see that that fact in itself is undermining the system as each of these cases hits the headlines. It just shows up the flaws even more glaringly, and each time it does, they just retreat back into their bunker.
4: Yeah, I think Emily Bolton, who works for Appeal, has yeah. quoted her say, "Well, I'd rather be charged with murder in Texas or somewhere than than in London, uh, because because they have much more open disclosure." I mean, right. I think it's something to do with the American Constitution has stuff about you know openness and freedom of information and things, which we traditionally don't really have. I suppose we're, um, we're quite a secretive society, really.
2: Yes, that's true. But hopefully, you know, as of when Jeremy gets out, it will give some impetus to the open justice you know, push for
4: that. Well, this is why, as I said at the end, it's so crucial because it, you know the, Jeremy's case sort of uh, embodies almost everything mm. <laughs> that I said there. It's um, it's um, really would uh, throw into question so many things about like the police, the courts, the appeal courts. In the media, you know. Mm. Yeah.
2: Right, is there any, any other questions? Anybody else like to ask Dennis? There, is a, there is a question in the comments, um, but I think it's probably more one for Yvonne. Um, if when Jeremy gets released, will he or anyone be able to prosecute the ones who falsified things?
3: Um, we will put criminal uh, cases together and civil cases. So yes, we believe so. We can, we've already got uh, a criminal complaint in regarding um, DSI Ainsley and other officers. That's been with for a year now. It doesn't just dis- involve his admittance that he took documents home and destroyed them. We thought, Do you know what, we'll tell them everything he did. So that's what we've done. So I can't reveal everything he did at this moment, but Mark has been chasing that up. I'm hoping that Mr Ainsley will be held accountable, and the others, very shortly. We'll just have to wait and see on that. But regarding other people who falsified evidence, who fabricated evidence, who committed perjury, then civil cases will be taken out against those. They have been prepared. So, yes, the answer is yes.
5: Can, can I yeah.
3: ask yeah, a question? Of um, can help.
1: Um, you said that the the CCRC
3: have got um, considerable policies of investigations if they choose to use them, yeah. Oh. Um, could they um, interview Julie Mugford again if necessary?
4: They could do, yeah. Um, I hope they will. Um, I would hope they would, yeah.
3: It, because she, even though she's in Australia, they would they would have to call her back, would they, or something like that?
4: Well, they might have to go there to interview her. I don't know. Um. But, uh, they, they
3: interviewed her in 2002, that was the Stoke and Church inquiry. They did it while she was sued, she's actually in Canada. We got a police officer in Canada to interview her. She was brought to appear at the appeal court, but was then never called. Mm-hmm. Oh. Right, we've got a couple of people with their hands
2: up. Marjorie, as we're keeping you up uh, down under, we, we're going to let you go first.
0: Thank you. I'm likely to be up for a while anyway. I would like to ask about the um, case managers working on the case. What are their qualifications and how many are
2: there? Just, I'd just like to know a bit more about the actual process of who's working up with, for Jeremy.
4: Um, right. Well, uh, the commission is supposed to have at least 11 commissioners. Uh, i'm not quite sure what situations now because they say they're all working one day a week most of them um on, on the case work well the ccrc has about 100 staff and i would guess about 40 to 50 of those are what are called case review managers um the system now is that they have a, a team leader who's a case review manager who's obviously been there for some time there's a system and so on who's kind of oversees a team of case managers case review managers. Um, The experience of case review managers, I think, varies considerably. I think some are uh, probably uh, graduates who have maybe had a little bit of legal experience. Um, Some are qualified lawyers, solicitors and barristers. Some are ex-policemen. So it's quite varied what their level of uh, experience is. But they all seem to have been... um, they all seem to absorb the CCRC bureaucracy. So it's like,
3: right? right. whichever one you talk to, they'll say pretty much the same thing. I'll just uh, update people that you may have remembered from Mark's um, discussion a couple of months ago that Jeremy's case does have a case review manager that was allocated pretty quickly, really. After about 12 weeks, he was given a case review manager. So... We're supposed to be getting regular updates off him. And they did initially agree that they would talk to us. They would talk to the legal team. They would talk to Jeremy. We haven't had any back. We have reminded them in our latest correspondence that you did say he talked to us. He did say he talked to Jeremy. So Well, I, we haven't, Mark has. But um, so now we're waiting for their next response, which is imminent. I don't know. We, we don't know could be a bit further on the process, will let us know what position they're at, it might be the decision, it might just be an update, we have no idea till we get that letter.
2: Right, we're going to go to, sorry, was that Thank about, you, baby. oh sorry, yeah, Marjorie, okay, thanks for that. Uh, Stephen, good, good to see you again, do you want to ask your question? Uh, well, no, uh, uh, it's
0: not a question so much as an observation, really, Philip, about the origins of the CCRC, um, because I was doing rough justice and trial and error when all this was going on, when the Ransom Runc- Commission was uh, working and then reported. And um, it, it, basically, the CCRC was flawed from the start because the purpose uh, of the Commission was to look at the idea at the time of the creation of what was then called the court of last resort. And it was apparent, you know, because of the failures, in mainly in the IRA cases, but not, not exclusively IRA cases, that the system as then constructed wasn't working properly. So that the idea was to create something which, which sat behind the Court of Appeal to pick up the things that kind of fell through the cracks of the Court of Appeal. And then, you know, as Dennis so eloquently uh, explained, um, when they actually created it, uh, they put it somewhere else. They put it kind of slightly before the Court of Appeal and it became another barrier to actually getting to, um, uh, to the Court of Appeal. And uh, in the end, um, it, it became more difficult to get your case before the Court of Appeal than even it was in the days of C3. You know, it, because C3 could work away... Uh, in its quiet little way, and sometimes it would refer things, you know, without the great bureaucracy uh, that the CCRC has eventually become. Um, And, you know, the the idea of a court of last resort, funnily enough, was one that, as far as I know, was originally dreamt up by, in America, by old Stanley Gardner, who wrote the Perry Mason uh, novels, um, you know, because his understanding of the system there, um, you know, he understood that whatever the system you put in place, there will be some people who pull through the cracks, you know, uh, and you have to be uh, able to pick them up. Um, a little comment actually on Innocence Projects, and Dennis, thank you very much for a really moving explanation of the work you do. In particular, um, I was touched by, you know, as I know only too well that um, how much it means to the people who get in touch with you that there is somebody on, on the outside who cares about their case and is working on their behalf. That's, that's so, in, so important. Um, and, you know, as to Innocence Projects and, you know, the fact that they've been more successful in America, I mean, oddly enough, I think that was because of a very particular situation, because we did quite a bit of work with Barry Sheck, uh, who set up the original um, Innocence Project over there, And it worked in a very simple way, which was at that stage, they were looking, uh, you know, DNA uh, had had become available as a forensic tool. um, And they were looking at a whole series of cases which predated DNA. And they were using their students basically to get in touch with the um, prosecution in those cases to find out if the exhibit still existed with any blood samples uh, attached to them. And if they were, they simply got hold of those, uh, those exhibits and had them retested. And, you know, this was a situation which could produce very quick and very um, indisputable results. You know, but eventually, of course, as the time goes on, you find that those people uh, alleging miscarriage of justice uh, have cases which actually post-date. The, um, the DNA, you know, so that's that sort of class of cases disappeared. So that's, um, that's kind of more or less everything I'd say on those subjects.
2: Right, thank you very much Stephen, interesting observations. Uh, Tom I think had his hand up a moment ago, are you, are you there Tom?
5: Yes, I'm, I'm here, if you can hear me, sorry yes? I've had yep, some we... difficult I've had some difficulties with my internet connection so I apologise if I'm repeating uh, anything that someone has already said Um, I was going to ask um, what is the most common specific reason for miscarriages of justice is there any reason that can be isolated and identified as the most common reason or or is there a group of reasons
4: that seem to to form a pattern I'm not sure you can sort of pinpoint one thing uh, Philip is right that disclosure is a big issue in many cases I mean some psychologists and people say, well, eyewitness, false eyewitness testimony is a, a massive uh, one. Um, I mean, there, there's a whole range of things, police corruption, poor, poor legal practice, uh, dodgy forensic science. Uh, you know, you can go on and on, really. The police, um, sorry, but,
5: do, do, do police officers enter into corruption because they tend to think that the person in front of them is guilty and that's why they bend the rules. Or is it because they just don't care? whether they're guilty or not, and they're willing to convict an innocent person?
4: Well, probably a bit of both, uh, depending on the police officer. There are there undoubtedly a whole lot of cases in Cardiff in the 80s, you know, the Darbells, the Cardiff Three, the Cardiff Museum Three. Jonathan I think there was a batch of police officers there, uh, and, uh, and the judges told me this is not just my opinion, who were out of control. You know, they, they were just stitching up the usual suspects you know do you think um, that
5: do you think that the disclosure problem could be resolved to some extent by having all evidence held independently or copied into an independent source that can be accessed by everybody or is there some other reform you'd yeah. recommend for, for disclosure
3: that
4: that would probably help the problem is of course the, the cost and practicalities of, of that and in fact that's sort of what that's sort of what we uh, along with Appeal, who we worked with on this, we did put together a charter, an open justice charter, and we had a very similar idea as that. But, of course, it would have significant cost implications and, and some evidence is, I suppose, sensitive. I mean, there you know, a lot of police. There are reasons which uh, the police can justify for keeping some evidence quiet, you know, which might reveal investigation methods or something like that or they're dotty informants more more often.
2: So I was just going to ask you about, sorry, Tom, did you, have you finished?
5: Yes, sorry, fine, thank you.
2: Yeah, um, I was just going to ask you about PII, um, Dennis, because somebody was asking me the other day about how the actual process works. If, as in Jeremy's case, a lot of material was put under PII, How did that work? Did did somebody from Essex Police have to get that signed off by the Home Office, or what was the process?
4: Um, I'm not 100% sure exactly how it works. I I think it does have to be agreed by um, probably probably the Home Office, yeah. Um, And in theory, if the Defence challenge it, then it it should be reviewed by an independent barrister who could look at it and say, well, you know, this should should be disclosed. Because, again, in theory, nothing should be under public interest immunity, mm. if it would be crucial to the case, in theory. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so an independent barrister should look at it and say, oh, well, you know, you've got this and you've got that. Um, but but, but um, as you
2: intimated, I, I, as I understand it, the original reason behind PAI was basically twofold. I think national security, obviously, which I think most people would agree with, and, and protecting police informants, wasn't it? Which, again, yeah. is, I think, a legitimate reason. However, just the sheer volume of stuff that they put uh, under PII in Jeremy's case, you know, clearly none of it fell in under those two categories. It, it just surprises me that all this stuff was signed off.
4: Yeah. Mm.
1: Can I just add something to what Tom said? Because I find it interesting. Uh, that uh, he said it about what is in gen- what, what in general the police were uh, just doing whatever they wanted to do for whatever reason. Generally in the 80s, I think, when they they done somebody for a murder or something like that, they would get a promotion. And I find it odd that D.S. Jones never got a promotion. Maybe they realised he was crooked. <laughs> or something like that. I've often, I've often wondered why he never got promoted.
4: Yeah, not what d- to do with it. A lot of dodgy policemen are involved in misconduct justice do yeah. <laughs> Go up the scale and become very, very senior. It's one yeah. of
3: the problems. Yeah. Um, DCi Ainsley became DSi Ainsley very, quick, very quickly. One very quickly. An important point
4: about about this. The issue of police corruption and so on, and or police not even corruption but poor practice. Uh, if the court of appeal ignores it and says, "Well, we're not going to take that as being an unsafe issue; uh, that's you know not that important," then it will carry on. And if you take the in the eighties and in the past seventies eighties, or 80s, well, famous cases were about forced confessions, weren't they? Uh, people questioning yeah. under pressure, and. OK, you had the Police and Criminal, Criminal Evidence Act, but it still continued, as in the of 3, even after that. But what has, what has stamped that out largely is, yes, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, but also the fact that the Court of Appeal was prepared to do something about it at that time. It overturned all those cases. Uh, and therefore, police thought, well, there's no point in doing that. It's going to be overturned. It's going to just come back and bite us. So that's why the Court of Appeal should, even if they think somebody's guilty, if, if the process is wrong... Then it is in the public interest to, to overturn that case because if we we can't protect society from criminals if criminals are running the show and if the police are acting in a, a criminal or an unjust un- dishonest way then uh, you know we've got greater dangers then than we'd ever have from criminals and I think most most of the you know decent police will probably agree with that
2: just another question on the technical side has the home system made any difference in the disclosure area obviously it's important that stuff goes on the home system in the first place because if it's not on there then clearly that you know is not going to be any help but as i understand it once it goes on the home system it's much more difficult to either alter or to hide
4: is your experience (laughs) Well, a, that's a fascinating question, actually. I wish uh, one of our police experts, Des Thomas, who uh, would, would answer that very well. I mean, he he would have said before he started uh, looking at helping out projects like ours, he would have said, "Yes, that's correct. Once it's on the helms, you know, it's there. It's firm evidence; it can't be messed around with." But he's what well, he's the things he's discovered about documents. Apparently being replaced and being uh, changed and uh, and all that sort of thing. And we've, we've uh, you know, what a case at the moment that we're dealing with. Uh, we wanted to, or well, we're suggesting to CCRC that they should look at this senior investigator's policy file to find out what was going on in this investigation. Um, and it's not on Holmes, and neither can they find it anywhere. And yet they assure us that there was one. Yeah. So, it does seem that holds can be manipulated. It's probably more difficult to get commuterized. computerised, mm. but um, it still seems to happen. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Right, anybody else with a, with a question
2: for Dennis? Darren, you wanted that.
1: Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah, Dennis. CCRC. Um, do you think that the Guildford Six, the Gil- the Guildford Four, and the Birmingham Six? would have got through and got released with the CCRC in operation. And do you think that we should go after the 2002 CCRC, bringing up the fact that they basically did something totally dishonest with the 28 days that was 29 days, just to get their attention? Or do you think that would cause too much damage rather than good? Um,
4: There's two questions there. First one, would... uh, well? Birmingham 06 I, I don't know um, i mean possibly because there was at that time a massive movement um, and and i think that society had come out that to realize that this this was in fact false conviction of course uh, were false convictions so i'm not sure i mean it, it might they might not have done or they might have done it. I mean, they did, uh, where there is a kind of uh, high publicity, the CCRC will say, oh, well, that doesn't make any difference to us. But you look at cases like Ched Evans and Marine A, I think there was a guy, um, they did uh, sort of fast-track them and um, and refer them. So whether the, the media pressure would have made any difference, um, I mean, there certainly was new evidence and and... Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, but I think they they might have referred them or they might not. Yeah, you know, it's very very difficult to say. The other the other question about the indictment. Well, uh, from Yvonne's talk, it seemed that they they did look at that in two thousand and two.
1: So Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying. Should we bring it to the attention there that we're not happy about it? Just just, yeah. just just to get the attention of the CCRC at the moment, uh, to give them one less reason to brush it off.
3: lawyers um, say no at the moment. We just said not at the moment. They, they, we, they know our lawyers know that the evidence we've given to the CCRC is absolutely uh, proves Jeremy's innocence. Proves that uh, his conviction is unsafe. Proves that there was evidence the jury should have heard about that they didn't get to know about. Proves there was things happened at trial. Um, what the judge was misdirecting the jury. We've got all that. We've got lots in it. We've got points of law. We've got, and it's points of law. What will interest the appeal court judges? stennis said they're not interested. If 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 they had so CCTV of Jeremy sat at home all night, they wouldn't be interested. It's like <laughs> right. points so of law. You know. The conviction is unsafe. We yeah. will go back to. I mean, the CCRC are completely wrong saying that the rules are discretionary. They absolutely are not discretionary. So it is there, it is an option, and it is an option we've spoken in depth about. And the lawyers don't want you to think they're not doing this because they can't be bothered to do this or that it's got no legs. They said I had to be very explicit and say the reason they're not using it at the moment is because the evidence is so robust that we've put into the CCRC, that we want to get Jeremy's conviction quashed and he doesn't want to get out on the technicality. He wants to get out and the world know he's innocent. He doesn't want to get out and they go, oh, yeah, but he got out because he wasn't... a, a died dotted with a T-crossed. That's not what we want. Jeremy's innocent and that's... He needs to get out on this. And every hey, issue we... will be made public.
1: Can we put them on the list of people that we want to get after his house?
3: The <laughs> there's,
4: there's a school of thought which um says that you know you shouldn't overload it overload your application with with everything, you know. I mean, don't and the natural thing in a way is to want to throw the kitchen sink at it. But the sort of legal view is you uh, focus on your strongest points and don't and that I think that kind of point probably would weaken the case, but it's it yeah, it sort of would sound right to a lot of people. And and the worst thing Worst thing for Jeremy, in a way, would be to be cleared on a technicality like that. Is that what he would say? Oh, yeah. No, it.
1: Technicality. I wouldn't um, want him cleared on a technicality. I, I would want him to be, yeah. And,
4: and it doesn't happen. In, in, uh, people aren't cleared on technicalities. And you know, it's
3: vanishingly rare for that to happen. Um, um, I mean, what, what, another thing what Dennis just said about, um, you know, being careful how much you go with. We thought long and hard after the judicial review was refused. We thought long and hard, do we go with one submission? Do we go with three? What do we go with? And we decided we would go with what we had at that time, which was absolutely slam dunk, which is the eight issues with multiple grounds of appeal in those issues. Since they've gone to the CCRC, we've discovered even more evidence. We've undenied whether to send that in. One piece has gone into them because it's really supportive of everything else. Uh, the rest we're still holding on to for now, just in case. But we're not going to need it. We're absolutely not going to need it. But in, in uh, the last statement of reasons we had off the CCLC, so submissions went in after the Court of Appeal refused this case. and We started making submissions again. Oh, and it took eight years for the CCRC to make a decision because every time something was found, add it to the submissions, which just dragged it on and on and on. And they did make an actual they did say to us, you know, you're not doing that. You put everything in what you've got. As you, you're not allowed to drip feed us with stuff. So we have had to follow their sort of rules and regulations. They applied to us as well. So. Fair. An interesting sort of technical point. It was,
4: I think, it was Jeremy's case in two thousand two, where he, he put in a whole so many grounds of appeal that what the judges did after that, they intervened in the construction of the two thousand three Criminal Justice Act, which was the worst piece of criminal justice legislation in history, by the way. Um, and there was a clause in there, Section three hundred and fifteen, which says that the Court of Appeal will only consider. The grounds that the CCRC refers the case on. Prior to that, once it was referred, you could bring anything in. But uh, I think it was Jeremy's case that provoked that clause. Um, so the Court of Appeal obviously doesn't like having too many grounds of appeal because it makes, creates too much work for them. <laughs>
2: um, so, yeah, but going back to the other point you mentioned about publicity and how you know the CCRC said well it doesn't really affect us. I know Stephen has been, <laughs> been very strong on this point in the, in the past that, you know, you will never run or get a successful miscarriage of justice uh, verdict unless you have a strong campaign around it. And it <laughs> definitely does seem that your chances of success do increase in direct proportion to the amount of noise you make. I mean, particularly, for instance, in the post office case where, you know, there's been several national newspapers running campaigns on their behalf. And then they uh, refer all, whatever it was, I think you said, 47 cases. Um, so uh, I think you're undoubtedly right on
4: that. Yes, an old campaigning friend of mine um, expressed it very well. To, um, overturning a miscarriage of justice requires a multitude of people to move heaven and earth. <laughs> so, no one yeah. person ever achieves it. You know, you've got to have so much uh, until you've been through the process, you you don't Nobody could quite understand just how difficult it is how much work is involved. But one further, sorry, just jumping about, one other point that emerged,
2: you you probably haven't seen this episode, but one of the Theroux episodes, um, they had a barrister saying how completely unfair the judge's summing up was. Now, obviously, this is an issue Jeremy raised, I think, in his his first appeal. How much weight would something like that if any would would that carry with the Court of Appeal?
4: Well, uh, there's a, there was a question actually. There was a question in the in the chat. I noticed what what can you do about judges who break the rules? Um, the answer is not very much, really. Um, I, I would have thought, really, maybe had it not been Jeremy's case that the, the bias in that something else. So, even one of the books and. Jeremy, I have read it, which was not particularly pro-Jeremy, doesn't illustrate it was the most biased summing up imaginable, really. Mm. And I think had it not been Jeremy's case, that summing up would be would have been the balance of appeal. I think the Court of Appeal, even the Court of Appeal might have said, Well, you yeah, know, that's, that's just just unacceptable. Mm. There's something about Jeremy's case that they they just wanted to resist.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right, anybody else? Over? John's got his hand up. John, all right, go ahead.
4: I think John and Eric, by the way. I think Eric's
2: right. had his hand under- up. Okay, John, go first and then, uh, then Eric. Yeah. Oh, thanks, yes. I, I hope this isn't something that's been asked. I, I did have to dash out to, to collect my wife. I missed some of this, which I, hopefully I'll be able to pick up on. Um, but Dennis, I, I'd be really interested in your view of whether, do you see any, any signs of change in the future? You know, have we got any, any hope that the whole... CCRC, Court of Appeal system might change for the better?
4: um, Well, I wish I could say yes. Uh, (laughs) I really do wish I could say yes. Um, And as I said right at the beginning of my talk, I'm afraid in uh, the time I've been involved in this, uh, things have just got worse. try and console myself and thinking that correlation doesn't necessarily apply a causal relationship. Um, but uh, I, th- I think things have been getting worse and they don't show much sign of getting any better. I mean, there are, all these committees, I've, anyone who's looked at this has recommended they should review the CCRC test and the Court of Appeal should be more open to question convictions. You know, the Justice Committee said that. Um, but it, it, nothing seems to happen. Uh, the Westminster report that came out The the government guy, Chalk, I think was, the deputy justice minister sort of listened to it and said, well, you know, we'll go away and think about it. But there aren't really any signs of anything getting better unless, as again, at the end of my talk, I said, well, that's one of the reasons Jeremy's case is so important because I think it would have a similar impact to the Birmingham Six and it would shake the foundations of so many things that's why they're resisting it it's nothing to do with the evidence you um, know is overwhelming um but you know hopefully it would meet as as with the Birmingham 6 I and mean, they resisted that for a long time eventually there was a tipping point where they could resist no longer i'm, I'm hoping we're reaching that point with jeremy now no. and if we are then that might be the one thing actually that could uh shape the foundations of, the, of this uh, Colossus in a way that uh, would actually bring about some change um, so that's one of the reasons this, this whole campaign is so
2: important. But it's clear, I think, that any change has got to be driven from outside the system, isn't it? Yep. Mm. Yeah. Uh, right, Eric, you wanted to... A... Sorry, John, is that, has that answered your question? Yep, good. E- Eric, and then we'll come to Ian.
0: Oh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, we
2: can, yeah.
0: Oh, good, I'm having problems again with this bloody... Uh, system, but anyway, uh, Dennis, I, I sent a chat before to you, and uh, so I'll just read it out because I've got to go shortly. But uh, like many people trying to highlight the scandals of this wretched legal system, I sometimes think we're banging our heads against a brick wall. But you and your students are an inspiration, Dennis, and your chat tonight stoked up the fire in my belly. Many thanks. <laughs>
4: oh, thanks, Eric. and Thanks for all the work you do.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that applies to to all of us. So uh, thanks, Eric. Ian, did you want to to ask a question? Yeah, please. Uh, Okay, so you mentioned earlier about not wanting to get them out on a technicality, but what's the chances that the CCRC will look at this and say, all right, we'll let them out on a technicality, so as opposed to then we don't have to... Mm. Mm. Listen to all the evidence, at Perseus. Yeah. it's still in the public eye? It's going to be, well. Yeah, you know, I
4: think I think, I think I think they might well, you know, if they do overturn the case, they might well try and wrap it up that way, because um, that would be a, way, a bit of a get-out clause, isn't it, for them in a way? So to, to give that impression that it's whatever it is, whatever grounds they overturn, it, you know, you know, very often the court of appeal says, well, this is not a statement of innocence. Um, but this was obviously
5: a, not a, a fair situation, so they might well dress it up that way. It wouldn't
2: be surprised. Yeah, they would be. yeah that's the fear. Mm. I, I, it sounded great when you, like, at the start of the night when Yvonne mentioned it in the air, uh, in that presentation. But like looking at it now, you're thinking, shit. Like, you know, they might get a put lipstick on a pig kind of thing.
3: If we yeah. didn't have the evidence we've got and it wasn't as strong as what it is, and absolutely undermines absolutely the Crown's case. Yes. It wipes it out of the planet, what we've got. If we didn't have that and it wasn't that strong, we'd definitely use it. But the lawyers are determined what we've got is going to work. If, it, if there's any like that, we'll put it in. If we need it as leverage, we'll put it in. So we don't need to worry about that. But at this moment... We're nearly eight months in to the CCRC's considerations and we them to focus on, you know, the people responsible, why this has happened, the, the points of law, the 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 evidence, the the how it's been fabricated, how um the corruption in the police has affected the case and all that. We would they have been asked to employ an independent police force. Every time we correspond with them, we ask for that. Whether they do that, I don't know. Whether that then removes that from their having to make that decision, I'm not all sure about that, Dennis. If if they do refer it, then it will be on the advice of the uh, exterior police force won't it? whether it gets the referral if they find these anomalies that we've... Well, not anomalies, they're absolutely slam and dunk. But if, if this exterior police force agrees with us, then that should warrant an immediate referral but whether they're going to do that is they just have to no, no, wait
4: I mean, it will, yeah it will make make the process quite long if they do these quickly
3: yeah.
4: i mean you could be that's waiting a year or more more than that in a case like this if they did an outside police force it could it could take they, years.
3: We, we did specify certain issues mm. So, um, but the other ones are referral points anyway. So, you know, and that ties in with our criminal complaint. Right. Um, any, Any last questions for Dennis?
2: No, I think we've covered everything. Well, th- thank you very much indeed, again, uh, Dennis, for that, that thank you, Dennis. fascinating
4: it's a insight. Thanks for
2: the invite. I'm sure we'll have you back again at some point as things progress to, to give your insight again. So thanks again. Yeah, Thank you for your time,
3: yeah. Dennis. Appreciate
4: appreciated. If you would like to join our mailing list for the latest updates on the case as they happen, please email us via our website www. Jeremy-Bamber.co.uk